Well, for our message this morning, we are still in Isaiah chapters 56 to 59. Last week, we looked at what these chapters in particular had to say about the the sinfulness of man, various ways that we fall into sin. And this week, what we want to look at is God's response to that sin. As I pointed out last week, the, the pattern of Isaiah 56 to 59 is to shift back and forth from news of the grace of God to news of our sinfulness, to news of the grace of God to news of our sinfulness. And so just as we looked at our sinfulness last week, this morning, uh, I'm going to put a, a finer point on that message of our sinfulness, and then we are going to turn our eyes to seeing what Isaiah has to teach us about the grace of God. And so the text that we'll read this morning will point to the grace of God that shows up despite our sin. So we'll first see that in Isaiah 57, 14 to 19. John will come and read that for us. And then in Isaiah 59, the second half of 15 to verse 20. And Pat will read that for us. And then we'll see the exact same message proclaimed in the New Testament. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 8 carries the same message as these verses that though we are wicked, nevertheless, God has redemption planned for us. And then finally, in Romans 5, 6 to 10, uh, Nate will read that for us. And so if you'd like to come forward now, John, to read for us from Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Isaiah 59 verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in, the, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Well, the aim of this sermon overall this morning is really just to try and get across to you how amazing the news is that we read in the second half of Isaiah 59, verse 16, where it says, Then his own arm, that's God's own arm, his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Now, I hope that by the end of this message, you can see just how staggering that is, that God's own arm would bring him salvation, and that God's own righteousness would uphold him. There's really two main points that I want to make in the message this morning in order to show you how glorious Isaiah 59, 16 is. The first thing is I want to remind us, or perhaps show you for the first time, the complete depravity of man. And then second, I want us to see the absolute grace of God in light of this depravity. Last week when we were looking at Isaiah 56 to 59, we primarily did look at the sin that was spoken of in these chapters. We looked at how the sin spoken of in these chapters moved from personal sin to religious sin to national sin. And the ultimate conclusion to all this sin is stated in the second half of verse of chapter 59 verse 15 in the first half of 59 16 it says the lord saw it that is he saw our disobedience the lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede this statement that there was no man, that there was no justice, is like the final agonizing conclusion of someone who has just done all that they could to try to believe something otherwise. It's as if God's entire worldview has just fallen apart in light of the facts of man's depravity. God in these chapters is being humanized. He's being portrayed as someone who started off with great aims for mankind, great hopes and dreams, only to have those hopes scuttled time after time. 
I imagine God here as being something like a mother who has great hopes for her son and believes he can accomplish anything that he puts his mind to, only to see her son make poor decision after poor decision and eventually even to end up in prison with a mother's heart broken. We see this trajectory over the course of Isaiah 56 to 59. Isaiah 56 begins with these words, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. These are God's great hopes for mankind. This is what he calls mankind to This is the high watermark of God's hopes for us. He is instructing us to keep justice and to do righteousness, to keep our hand from any evil. This is like the mother looking at her son when he is still young, saying that, oh, he can do anything. He's so great and he's going to do such great things. But then in the rest of chapters 56 and 57, We learn only of the personal sins that the people committed, how they did not keep justice or do righteousness or keep their hands from doing any evil. We learn instead that they followed their appetites and that they served idols. And so after this first round of discovering their sin, it's as if God lowers his expectations for mankind. And so in Isaiah 57, 15, he says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So the command seems to be lowered from this initial burst of keep justice, do righteousness, keep your hand from any evil. And he says, well, if you will simply be contrite, if you will simply admit that you are lowly, then then I will still be near to you. It's as if God is saying, okay, I see that you cannot keep justice, that you cannot do righteousness. So look at this. You can still come to me if you will just say that you are sorry, if you will just acknowledge your wrong and acknowledge that I'm good, then I will still accept you. But even after that plea, The theme again returns to the sin of the people, to their religious sins. And so after observing these sins of the people and pleading for them to return, God makes one more plea. In Isaiah 58, verse 13, he says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you can hear God pleading with his people one more time. He emphasizes keeping the Sabbath, the day of rest. It's as if he's saying, just start here. Just take a day of rest. Just take one day where you don't go your own way. Just one day where you look to me instead. And if you just take that one day, then I will come and restore you, make you ride on the heights of the earth, feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. That's an especially 
poignant word from God. Jacob was, of course, the the founder of Israel, the father of Israel. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, and he was the father of the twelve tribes, the twelve sons that became the twelve tribes. And so it's as if God is saying that, hey, I will return to you and you will know me just as Jacob knew me. If you just observe my Sabbath, just take this one day of rest, our, our relationship won't be broken, but it will actually be like it was in the beginning with my servant Jacob. But sadly, even after this final plea, this call to observe the Sabbath, this is where we reach our conclusion in Isaiah 59, 15 and 16. It says, The Lord saw it and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no man, not One, no one took the Lord up on his offer. No one took the Lord up on his plea. No one kept justice or did righteousness. No one turned to God with a contrite and lowly heart. No one kept the Sabbath as a holy day, even with this beautiful promise of being held out that I will give you the food of your father Jacob. No one listened to God. Everyone went their own way even though God reminded them again and again. Beloved, do you understand just how hopeless our standing is before God? Do you understand that all of us, each one of us, for many years of our lives rejected the pleas of our loving Heavenly Father, the promises that He held out to us? We rejected these things and we went our own way? Do you understand how even now, as we continue to sin, it's like we continue to stiff arm this Father who's calling to us, who's asking for our humility, who's asking for our obedience? Our state is described very well in Ephesians 2, 1-3, one of the texts that we just read before this message. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's two particular phrases that I want to highlight from these verses to again emphasize our standing before God, our condition before God. The first phrase is that phrase, dead in trespasses and sins. And the other one is, by nature, children of wrath. You may have heard this before, but I want to make sure it is clear to all of us that dead in our trespasses and sins does not mean mostly dead or partially alive, as one great movie puts it. We didn't have a little power for good remaining in us and God just had to give us a boost. No, dead is what it sounds like. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We truly had no hope. If a dead man is floating in the water, it does no good to throw him a life preserver. They are already dead. They are not able to grab onto it. Dead here means that we truly did not have one speck of good left in us. 
We were utterly corrupt. This is why Isaiah says there was no man and there was no one to intercede because humanity, we ourselves, are dead in our trespasses. We are utterly corrupted. Completely corrupted. And this means, the second phrase that I wanted to look at that Ephesians uses is we are by nature children of wrath. So because we are so utterly devoid of anything good in us, it is entirely just of God to condemn us to the uttermost. Just as we may feel an urge to see the right punishment for people that we view as utterly corrupt, the famous evildoers of the past, people like Hitler or Pol Pot or Stalin, we think these people are evil and they deserve punishment. So God feels a right urge to punish us as evildoers who have nothing good left within us. And so we are called children of wrath like the rest of mankind because God's wrath rests upon us and because we are entirely dead in our state of sinfulness. There is no possibility that the wrath of God can be removed. It is only by sheer patience that God does not condemn any human being from the moment of their first conscious sin. Beloved, until you understand how utterly devoid you were and how utterly devoid you are of any kind of merit in yourself, of any kind of goodness in yourself, until you realize just how evil you were and how evil you can still be, you will never know the hope and the mercy that is offered in Jesus Christ. As long as you think that you can be some kind of partner in your salvation with God, or somehow God is just maybe bringing back to life the the embers of goodness that are still glowing in your heart, you will not understand the incredible freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. Understand our own utter helplessness and evil. Understanding this is the prerequisite to knowing fully the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you now, are you ready to condemn yourself as a sinner? Are you ready to admit that there truly is nothing good at all that dwells in you? Are you ready to admit that you truly are dead in your sins and are a child of wrath? Beloved, I know that in our culture today, especially in our ears, that sounds like a terrible idea. It sounds like a terrible thing to do to admit that about ourselves. It almost sounds like you have a mental illness to think so lowly of yourself. You're not going to find any Disney movie or any Netflix show where the main character truly comes to understand the depths of their own depravity and recognizes that they deserve no different punishment than any other sinner that ever lived. No, all the narratives of our culture today are about people who find some inner goodness and they're able to turn it around by some strength that they have within them and become the hero. It sounds crazy to say that I really am hopeless and there's nothing at all that I can do. When we come to the end of ourselves, we understand the sentiment that's expressed here in Isaiah 59. Listen to these words of Isaiah 59, 9 to 13. It says, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness 
does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those full of vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Again, beloved, do you feel that you can say that about yourself? Do you have that kind of utter despair about yourself that when you look inward, you say, I'm looking for light, but behold, darkness? The transgression just continually chases you down? That you're not able to escape? That you look for salvation, but it is far from you because you realize that in yourself, you have no hope? To use the words here, would you be willing to say that your transgressions are multiplied multiply before you, that your sins testify against you, that you know your iniquity and that you transgress and deny the Lord? Are you able to speak so forthrightly and unblinkingly about your sin? Or do you always find some kind of excuse some kind of reason why God should really understand why you are the way you are, that you're really the, the victim here. You're not the perpetrator of evil. You're not dead in your sins. It's just that other people have, have treated you wrong, and that's why you, you have the problems that you now have. The question for us is, will we agree with God about our sinful state? Beloved, just so it's clear that I I'm, I'm no exception. Let me tell you that I know myself that I am not a good person. I still sin every day. I don't love my wife and my children the way I should. I don't love you, my church family, the way that I should. I don't desire God the way that I should. I don't think that there's one single thing that I do in my life that is untainted by my sin. I am not a good man. Beloved, I can own that. And I want you to own that too. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, is it surprising to you that, that I, that, that we would be so honest about how bad we are? I know that most often in popular media, Christians are portrayed as the holier-than-thou types. Like we know the rules and we keep the rules and we just want to let everybody else know when they fail. Beloved, I do know the rules, but I cannot keep them in my own strength. I have no room to say that I'm better than anyone else this morning. In fact, I would not be a bit surprised if I were worse than many unbelievers. I see many non-Christians that seem to live better lives than me. I am not a righteous man. But you see, it's so uncomfortable to our human nature, and especially 
to us as Americans with a can-do spirit to confess that our badness really is so great and to simply leave it there as the last word. We always might say that, yeah, we, we are messed up, but there's always kind of a yeah, but added to the end of it. We always think, yeah, but I'll do better tomorrow. Or, yeah, but I've, I found a new program and it's really going to help me. Or, yeah, but I'm still not as bad as that other guy over there. Or, yeah, but God understands how hard it is to be good. Or, yeah, but I have a good heart and I have good intentions. Beloved, there is not and there cannot be any yeah, but to our sin. Beloved, do you understand what sin is? Do you understand how vile it is? We don't get to say, yeah, but. We don't get to grade ourselves on a curve while we hold everyone else responsible for every mistake that they make. We don't get to say that we are really good people at heart when our actions consistently and always say otherwise. My plea is to just get over yourself and just admit how bad you really are so that we can come to an actual solution. The longer you fool yourself and think that you can somehow pull your own act together, the longer you will be stuck in the sin that you are in. It's like quicksand. The harder you fight it, the faster you sink. And I also understand that there is a certain kind of terror that comes upon us when we admit that we are actually as bad as we are. We have terror both because it means that it's the end of our our positive (laughs) self-image. All of a sudden we feel like we're worthless and we're nothing. And it's also terror because it means that we indeed acknowledge that the God of the universe actually does have every right to judge us. It's like we are on trial for murder and we know that we can't plead guilty because as soon as we do, that means that we go on death row. And so we fight and we fight and we fight to maintain our innocence so that we don't have to face the bleak reality of life where we condemn ourselves and where God condemns us too. That kind of condemnation from inside, confessing it about ourselves and from outside, knowing that God wants to condemn us in our sin too, feels like it's going into some deep, dark cave where no light will ever penetrate again. We think, isn't isn't admitting this level of badness kind of like giving up? If we admit that we're really totally corrupt, doesn't that mean we're just kind of throwing in the towel that we... that that we can't do anything good? You think we, we can't make that kind of admission. We don't want to give up. We want to live. We want to keep fighting. We want to say that we really can do it. Well, beloved, under normal circumstances, you're right. We don't want to give up. We do want to keep fighting. To simply admit how terrible we are would be like, resigning yourself to being less than what you should be somehow. And so we want to continually lie to ourselves that we have everything under control until we feel like we really do have everything under control. Fake it till you make it, as they say. And so we lie about our sin. We lie about our goodness. We try to present ourselves as better than we are. We don't admit our utter lostness. But beloved Here is the freedom that comes from admitting our total failure 
and our total inability to fix ourselves. We just have to read on in Isaiah 59, 16. God says he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So hear that again. That's God saying, none of you are good. None of you are righteous at all. None of you have responded to my pleas. But look at the second half of verse 16. It says, Then his own arm brought him salvation. Then his own arm brought him salvation. Beloved, do you hear what this verse is saying? There is joy in ceasing from trying to be our own Savior, from trying to fix ourselves. Because suddenly it enables us to look to the Lord who says that his own arm, God's own arm, brought him salvation. It didn't come from within us. It was not something that we did. It's something that God decided to do on his own, totally apart from us, even when we were dead in our sins. When God saw that there was no man, and that no one could be righteous at all, that no one could keep his Sabbath, no one could even so much as have a contrite spirit, what did he do? He said, well, if no one here can do what they should, then I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. I guess I am going to have to do what they could not do. I guess I will have to save them because they cannot save themselves. Remarkably, what God did when he saw the complete evil of the human heart was not to judge us completely, was not to cast us out and condemn us as he did in the days of the Noah, but God's impulse was actually the opposite, to come and to rescue us, to do for us what we could not and never hoped to do for ourselves. You see, until you admit your total inability to do right or to please God, you will also not see the need for God to come and save you. Until you embrace the fact that you are a hopeless sinner through and through, you have no need for God to come and do what you cannot do. As long as you have some hope left in yourself, left in your own goodness, you will not be able to accept the salvation of the Lord. You will continually think, I I still got this. I can figure this thing out. Indeed, the sad truth is that there are many Christians who have not come to this full gospel realization that there is nothing good that dwells in them and they're still trying to live by their own strength, by the strength of their own goodness day after day thinking that they can get their own act together. When Isaiah 59, 16 says that his own arm brought him salvation, that is only the result of seeing that there is no one else that could do it, of seeing that there was no man on earth that could possibly bring about salvation by their own strength. Again, there had to be the commands of chapter 56 to keep justice and do righteousness, and there was no response. There had to be the sweet invitation of chapter 57 to come to him with a contrite and lowly heart. But again, there were no takers. There had to be the reminder of chapter 58 to keep Sabbath so that God could pour out his blessings upon you. But again, 
no one would listen? And what was God's response at the end of this long path of people rejecting him? Was his response hatred? Was his response enmity? No, beloved, his response is this. My own arm will bring salvation. I will save you myself because you cannot save yourselves. The word salvation here in Isaiah 59, 16 is used in the ultimate sense. Salvation means rescue. Usually salvation in the Old Testament means that you're saved from some enemy that's trying to kill you or destroy you. And so God comes and rescues you from the enemy. He, he brings you salvation. All through Isaiah, Israel had been looking at the nations around them as their greatest threat. They look at the nations around them saying, Lord, we need salvation from these people who are attacking us. But here in these chapters, it's as if God is saying, no, your scariest enemy, your biggest enemy is not these nations around you. It's not the situation that you are in. Your worst enemy, the one that you need rescuing from, is sin itself. Because it is the sin that is creating the separation between you and me. And it is your sin that is leading you into wrath and judgment. So don't ask for salvation from people or situations. Ask for salvation from sin. As chapter 59 goes on to make clear, God truly is coming against sin as if sin were a physical enemy. Verse 17 depicts God as a warrior going into battle on behalf of his people. Isaiah 59.17 says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You might be familiar with the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6, but you probably didn't realize that Paul was just borrowing from Isaiah. Again, this language might be surprising to us because this is normally the language that's used when someone is going out to do battle against an enemy, putting on a breastplate, putting on a helmet, putting on garments of vengeance, and putting on a cloak. But in reality, in accomplishing salvation through Jesus, God really was going into battle. Romans 8.3 says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God had this plan of attack when he sent his Son that he wanted to defeat sin. He wanted to condemn sin. And that is what God accomplished in sending Jesus Christ. He went out as a warrior against our sin when we would not fight against it ourselves. Or perhaps even more clearly in Colossians 2, 13-15. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, there's that phrase again, dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then here, verse 15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He triumphed over them. God went out as a warrior 
against the power of sin that was opposing us. So God in Jesus was fighting our enemies that were seeking to destroy us far beyond the power of any government to destroy us, far beyond the power of any boss or loved one to destroy us, far beyond the power of any earthly situation to destroy us. No, these evil powers wanted to destroy us by bringing about our eternal condemnation. And the way that these evil powers were going to bring about our eternal condemnation was by keeping this record of debt, by keeping this list of wrongs that we had done. And then when we came before the throne room of God, these evil powers were going to show this list to God the Father of all the sins that we had committed, of all the wrongs that we had done. And they would say to God the Father, see, you must condemn this person because of all these wrongs that they have done. But Jesus defeated these schemes upon the cross because he took that list of all these wrongs that he, that we had done and they were nailed upon the cross. And so those sins literally were punished in Jesus Christ. He took those sins to the grave with him in death so that there now is no record of wrongs for these evil powers to present before God. There is no accusation that they can make against us anymore. This is what God did himself of his own desire, of his own will, even when we were dead in our sins, even when he had every right to condemn us. He instead died for us in order that he might rescue us from our greatest enemy. You see, this is how scripture describes the fact that Jesus came and accomplished a salvation for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. God's response to our inability, God's response to our complete evil, was not, let them burn. Let them suffer the consequences of their sins. No, it was, I will come and I will save you. The close of Isaiah's depiction of this salvation coincides with the end of chapter 59. Isaiah 59 verses 20 and 21 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When 59 verse 20 says, a redeemer will come to Zion. We can turn to the New Testament and we see in Luke 24, 21, Galatians 4, 5, Titus 2, 14, all these verses say that Jesus redeemed his people. Jesus is the Redeemer who came to Zion. Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus went to Jerusalem in order to bear our sins, in order to rise again from the dead. He is the Redeemer who God sent. He is the warrior who put on the breastplate and the helmet and accomplished the salvation. We see this even more clearly when we look more closely at verse 21 of Isaiah 59. Notice the unusual structure of Isaiah 59, 21. It begins with the words, this is my covenant with them. So there's this 
plural group of people that God is making a covenant with. This is my covenant with them. But then as soon as he says that, he shifts to talking about an individual. He says, my spirit that is upon you. A singular individual. My spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth and forevermore. What Isaiah is depicting for us here is a promise that God the Father made to God the Son. God the Father made this covenant with God the Son to say that my word and my spirit will not depart from you. And the word that I put in your mouth will also be upon the mouth of your children and your children's children. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are called children of God. And so this is what God did, beloved, in the face of our disobedience, in the face of our intransigence. He sent his son to do good to us and save us where we could not save ourselves. He made this covenant with his son that he would go to Zion and that he would die on a cross so that his people could be saved. In closing, I just want to offer three points of application on the basis of this text. My first question is simply this. How do you relate to God day to day? How do you relate to God? Do you relate to him as someone who is always looking at your performance and gauging what he will do for you on the basis of your performance? Beloved, if this is how you feel, then I don't think you've really come to understand the good news of the gospel. As this text shows us, the good news of the gospel is not that God will come and help us if we are really good and if we can really show that we deserve it. The message of the gospel is that as Romans 5, 6 puts it, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Beloved, your weakness, your ungodliness is not the reason why God won't come and help you. It's the very credential you need for God to reach out to you in mercy. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So don't hide your sins from him. Don't think that you can clean yourself up before you come to God. Admit how bad you are right here and right now and ask God for mercy. Beloved, especially if you understand your helplessness, then God will come and help you. In short, do not relate to God on the basis of works. Relate to God on the basis of grace. If you relate to God on the basis of works, you will never have any joy or any sense of nearness to God because you will always know that you fall short. But if you can understand the sheer grace of God for you, a sinner, then you will find the doors of heaven unlocked and your relationship with God will grow in a way that you never knew existed. So stop trying to maintain your own goodness. Admit your utter wickedness and trust that God will come to you precisely because you are helpless in your sin. 
Second, care for those who are crushed in spirit and care for those who are poor. When you are someone who has come to understand your own true spiritual poverty, how you had nothing at all to present to God as something to earn his favor, how you did not do anything to earn God's salvation, how could you then be hard-hearted against others who perhaps have no reason why we should help them, who perhaps can show no worthiness of our support, of our help, who perhaps are not deserving of respect. Beloved, that's the same condition that we are in before God. God came to us even when we were lost in our sins. And so if God did that for you, how could you fail to do that for others? This is precisely why Christians are to be a people that care about the poor, who care about those who are crushed in spirit. This is why we can weep with those who weep. Not because other people deserve it. Not because they've shown themselves to be good or shown that they will use their resources wisely. But because we didn't deserve what God did for us. And God came and he did it anyway. So let's show mercy on others. Let's show love and compassion toward others as we understand our own plight before God. Beloved, if you have no desire to do that, if you do not want to help those in such a situation, then you have probably not recognized the desperation of your own situation before God and what he did for you. Third and finally, if you haven't done it before this morning, then I just urge you to cast yourself upon the grace and mercy of God. Admit that you are a sinner who has no hope of saving yourself. Admit that you need this Redeemer that came to Zion, Jesus Christ. Admit that you need this salvation that God worked with his own arm, with his own hand, because you could not work your own salvation. Romans 10.13 gives us this promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will have the salvation of the Lord. So call upon the name of the Lord in your desperation and God will save you. And then fight to maintain that posture each and every day. Turning from self, turning from thoughts of your own goodness and depending upon God day after day in His Spirit, moment by moment, recognizing that you are not good, that you in your flesh will never be good. And then it's only by God's grace that you have the power to live life or to get through the day. And so if you call upon the name of the Lord in that way, God will not fail you. You will be saved. And so, beloved, praise God for so great a salvation. Praise God that we are not condemned, that he did not wait for us to become good before he showed us his favor. Praise God that he is such a mighty warrior so as to overcome sin itself when we were powerless against our foe. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together now. I'll open us first in a time of just confession and prayer around the message. And then I'll shift us to a time where we can pray about the concerns of the world. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to admit our helplessness this morning. Lord, I know how resistant my own pride is to that. How much I think that there is so much good in me. And so, God, I continually pray that you would humble me, Lord, that you would take away any hope that I have in myself so that I may indeed cast myself upon your grace and upon your grace alone. Father, would you now hear our prayers of confession? Would you hear our prayers that you would work in us and through us? 